Um, but, but when I looked into the science behind this, what I found is that people were equally likely to be harmed by their inner voice, that just going inside and searching for answers doesn't always help people. Sometimes it makes our problems much, much worse because then we get, get stuck in these negative thought mm-hmm. loops like mm-hmm. we suck. What if this happens again? You know, the coach hates me or, you know, any number of forms that, that, that lead to things like anxiety and depression. And so that, that was a puzzle that I wanted to try to solve, right? So why is it that sometimes this inner voice is a tool that can help us, but other times it can really harm us? And, and, and how, do you, how do you make it help you if it's harming you? Yeah. Ethan, we're all live now. Uh, Ethan just told us that he's a Giants fan. Grew up a Giants fan? Grew up a Giants fan. Okay, why not not Jets? What's the reason why you weren't a Jets fan? Well, you know, it was always – I I rooted for the Jets um, as long as they weren't competitive with the Giants. That's how it worked. It's like Yankees-Mets dynamic. Yeah, yeah. So if the the Jets – Found their way, which probably will never happen. Found their way into the Super Bowl. Are you cheering for? Are you rooting for the Jets? Oh, absolutely. Oh, okay. True New, New Yorker, then all the New way. Yeah. Now, now I'm a Wolverine. I've got to say that's that's taken over. Oh yeah, um, Ann Arbor. Huh? Allegiance college football. Yeah. yeah. But, um, but you know, the Cowboys were always an interesting team growing up to uh, to think about. So because yeah, um, we used to kick y'all's ass all the time, Ethan. That's <laughs> yeah, why. Pretty much. That is the reason. Much. That is the reason why it was all right, interesting. All I right, gotta... Ethan. I want you to be brutally honest. <laughs> what did you think of Darren when he was playing? Well, you know, I I, I respected the talent. <laughs> I was so honest. That's a great answer. <laughs> But um, but there might have been some ex. You know, it's interesting. So I just wrote a book on on the inner voice and that yes, stream yes. of thoughts. And uh, I, I don't know that that you would want to peer into my inner voice when I saw you make some of the plays that you did. We might not be talking too friendly right now. Uh, <laughs> the inner voice. We're definitely going to get gonna- to that. Uh, and you mentioned your book, Chatter. Uh, the voice in our head, why it matters, and how to harness it. And I I opened this before we press record. I'm super excited about this because I want to know if my inner voice is the most jacked up inner voice you've ever met in your life. (laughs) Yeah, there's so much around this. There's so uh, so much meat on this bone based on the fact of, you know, as an athlete, and both Ben and I were were former athletes and our other co-hosts actually played uh, in the NFL for seven years, seven, eight years, Tyler. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, And the same thing. I mean, you always had that, you know, that I always had that inner voice in my head going into the game. And, and we'll get into this, but I, I, I'm just, I'm really, I really need to know and understand why that inner voice pops up and why it's there. And it's either a negative and it's a positive and, you know, we can go that way. But hey, let's, let's start back and, and start with your journey. Ethan, where did you grow up and what were the family dyna- dynamics when you were uh, grew up, growing up in, in Brooklyn, right? In Brooklyn, yeah, I, I grew up in a, a working class neighborhood of Brooklyn, um, a real melting pot, lots of different people, every, every color, every religion, every nationality. Looking back, it was a really neat place uh, to grow up, except for when I was, you know, looking behind my shoulder to make sure I wasn't getting mugged. That aside, <laughs> it, was, uh, it was a lot of fun. Um, 
and you know, I had an interesting family dynamic because my mom, uh, my mom was a, you know, a, an elementary school teacher and, um, you know, kind of a, a, what you would think of, you know, as a, a warm, supportive, loving mom did her job, came home, we hung out. Um, my dad, on the other hand, was a bit of an unconventional character. Um, never, never went to college. Well, he did for about a year or so dropped out. Um, smoked voraciously, loved flipping off other people on the road in Brooklyn. I, he, he embodied this time, a yeah. big bushy mustache. Nice. Uh, except when he wasn't doing that kind of stuff, he was, he was reading about Eastern philosophy, about yeah. meditation, about mindfulness. He was meditating, you know, in the, I have this wow. image in my head of him sitting, sitting, you know, with his legs crossed, lotus position in the bed cigarette sometimes hanging from his mouth as he's as as he's meditating, meditating. So that was an interesting environment what was interesting about my dad the reason i bring him up is he's talked to me like i was a, a really a friend and an adult from the time i was a little kid for as long as i can remember mm -hmm. so you know that's not to say he didn't take me to little league and soccer and help you know do all that kind of fun stuff but he was also talking to me about really about the mind and how it can get you in trouble and and what he had been reading about with respect to how can you, how can you manage the mind to give you an edge? And, um, and when he talked to me about that stuff growing up, it was, it was pretty, um, pretty oppressive, pretty, you know, I didn't always, I, I was more, more happy talking about GI Joes and, and transformers <laughs> and things like that, or the Yankees, not, right. not necessarily the Cowboys. <laughs> but, um, um, but, but his messages stuck with me uh, mm -hmm. throughout, throughout my childhood and adolescence. And, and interestingly, as, as parents have a way of doing, um, I, I heard his voice throughout, throughout my life. And I've, I've, I've heard it, and it has influenced me ever since. Mm. So were you the only, an only child, or were you, did you have yeah, brothers I, and sisters? I was, I was the only child. And you know, in contrast to all the stereotypes that, that say, only child, only children love being only children and, you know, sent to the world. I would have liked to have some brothers and sisters mm, to hang around absolutely, with, but, yeah. but I, but I didn't. Yeah. How about the two of you? I grew up with you? three, a single parent, single mom, um, uh, two, two brothers and, and an older sister. And I was the baby. Uh, I was the punching bag for a number of years until they all moved out. Uh, but yeah, I was that kid. I, the reason why I was scrappy was because I was always, you know, fighting for the leftovers most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got I've got three brothers myself, uh, so there wasn't a lot of time for my inner voice. It was usually one of them yelling at me. Yeah, at, at, while we were fighting with each other. So you you said something a second ago, and and I have two young children. Darren's got got four kids himself. You said you were typically more interested in G.I. Joes, but your dad was trying to integrate and, and ingrain these, these philosophical thoughts into your head. How would you say you received that at that age? Because I think as parents, we obviously want to pass along things, but we don't always know if they're going to get it or not. So how did you receive that information as a kid? I was like a, I was like a freaking sponge. I just, I just absorbed it. And... I absorbed it even when I didn't want to be absorbing it. So in other oh. words, even when we were in the car 
you know, traveling on the Bell Parkway, me seeing the finger fly up every, you know, yeah. <laughs> like it, it, in, in Brooklyn, I don't know if you got, have you guys spent much yes, time in, I have. Old yes. in Brooklyn? I've yes. been like, once. I, I've got my stereotypical imagination of what it's like. But Well, also yeah. well, when you go to like the DMV, essentially, most people learn how to drive like this. You know, in Brooklyn, it's like this. <laughs> You know, I, on that horn, that's, that's how you go. You know, right. for listeners, I've got one hand. On yes, the yeah, yeah. Here in Texas, you don't use that horn like you do in Brooklyn. In Texas, it might be more dangerous because it in is. Brooklyn, it's mostly just talk. You yeah, know, yeah. Texas might be concerned with what might happen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly um, right. In Michigan, of course, where I live now, it's interesting. Um, you know, no one, no one uses the horn. We don't even need horns. People will actually better hit your car than use their horn because everyone wants to be so polite. So that, that, yeah. The only, the only exception to that is when, um, when, when this team from Ohio comes to play. Mm. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. right. Yes. Oh, right. Buckeyes will roll in. Yeah. <laughs> it's about time you guys got the Buckeyes off your back, man. That's about that. It's about that yeah. time now. It's, it's, it's been a while. It would be it would be really really nice. I, I don't know if we want to dive into that just yet. We no, want to yeah. we, we want to treat them well yeah. first. Well, let me go, let me go back to your question. So, so what was interesting, and this affects my parenting now. So I've got two uh, yes. two daughters. Uh, one they will actually they both graduate today. One's going to sixth oh. grade, and their second. Right. So um, what I learned from my dad was I was always listening. Um, and, and I really valued him treating me like an adult and not really waiting to, to talk to me about weighty, important issues until I was, you know, in high school or so. I remember he used to always tell me, no matter what you do, make sure you help people in some way. Mm. That was a message that was just ingrained. And so you know, like I, some of the time I'm in my lab, we're doing experiments, but I'm always thinking, how can this work if it's successful eventually help people in some yeah. real consequential way. I, um, so with my kids now, what I do is, um, you know, we, we do plenty of, you know, horsing around and it's not, it's not GI Joe's it's, it's, it's ballet and theater and, you know, <laughs> a little bit different. That sort, painting my nails, but, um, but I'm, but I do, you know, I, I make an effort to like go for a walk with the kids, uh, go for a hike and, and just talk to them about, the world. And, um, you know, some of the time they don't want to listen either. And they tell me, mm. my, my youngest is like, oh, it's just so bullying, daddy. It's so bullying. Yeah. And, uh, Man, I you, through it, so. it's a, it's a little disappointing to know that she's already too cool for you in second grade. I've got a four year old as my oldest, and I'm I'm not ready for him to be too cool for me just yet. Yeah, you, you just wait; it's coming, it's coming. No. So, in, in growing up in, in in Brooklyn, was it you know was this? Listen, we're we're in Dallas. I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, but you always heard the stories of of New York City at that time. It's always been a tough city. Did, was it was it did it feel that way when you were coming up that it, this is this is different or does it just you were just so accustomed to the neighborhood and and how things played out you know i i i worked my butt off in in high school so i could leave brooklyn and never come back mm. but, so it does pain me now that it has become the coolest place in the universe <laughs> right, you know, so right. yeah where people go to vacation but no, it was very apparent to me that it, this was not the way life had to be. I mean, I remember my freshman year in high school, there was um, there was this like 
you know, this gang going around. They were, did you guys remember Jan Sports book bag? Oh, yeah. Remember those? Yes, yeah. I still, I still yeah, got yeah. a backpack yeah. of theirs. <laughs> you got one. Okay. Oh, so, yeah. so, so when I was going to freshman year on the I took the city bus and there was like a group of kids going around with, um, with like razors and just slashing your straps Strap. to mm-hmm. get the Jan Sport. And mm. so that was life. That was a reality. I mean, um, you it was a different culture, at least compared to where I live now. And, um, you know, I, like I, I had a few fights, um, and I, I, I didn't particularly care for them. Um, right. I mean, love playing sports and things like that, but, um, I definitely wanted something different for, um, for my kids. I mean, I, I tell my wife, we didn't grow up in that kind of environment, my spidey senses, if you get that reference, yes, mm-hmm. they're act, they're always activated, uh-huh. right? So if I'm if I'm in a city, I'm always looking around, I'm checking out my spaces, I'm, and that was a result of of where I grew up, yeah. And um, and I didn't necessarily want my kids to have have to have their spidey senses activated all the time as well. Yeah, yeah I, I remember going to the first time I, I was in New York City. I was with a couple of my buddies, and and this was an had to be 92 or 93, which was my first time being in New York City. And I had a couple of guys that uh, that I played with that were from there, one being from the Bronx and the other one from Brooklyn. And we got on the subway. And before we got on the subway, they told me, hey, you don't have any, like, jewelry or anything on, do you? And I was like, no, why? And they was like, good. <laughs> Just kept walking. And I asked them, I said, what's the deal? I said, because, look, man, we don't want any attraction, and we don't want to bring any attention to what you're wearing. Like it was, mm-hmm. it was that crazy, but that's, you're right. Your spidey, your spidey senses go up because you've lived in that sit type of yeah. situation for so long. Yeah. It, it, let's, let's talk about that for a second. And, and I've mentioned a dozen times before I was born in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. And so lived there the first five years of my life. So very similar to what you're describing there. You always have to be, you know, looking over your shoulder. Uh, in fact, my parents had a car stolen at gunpoint at one point mm-hmm. while we lived there. So I, I get that the, your mentality of, I don't want my kids to go through that. Obviously the violence, but I got to think there was perspective growing up in such a dynamic environment that you gained that now maybe your kids don't have because of the way that you're, you're raising them. How do you balance the dynamic of, I want to give them the perspective, but I want to give them also a better life than, than maybe I was, I grew up with. I mean, this is a great question. This this could be this could be the next book. Maybe it's the three of us. And mm, I love it. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Um, you know, I think about this a lot. Uh, we're fortunate because where we live in Ann Arbor, Ann Arbor is this wonderful oasis in the Midwest, and it's a it's a culturally divo- diverse um, area like like Brooklyn. So the elementary school that my kids go to, they have a, an international night every every year, and there's something like. 40 or 50 different countries represented. And so that's really great. And, mm-hmm. and one thing I really valued was, you know, I, my friends didn't all look and talk the same, yes. you know, there were all sorts of people from all sorts of areas. And, and, um, and that's something that I think was really helpful for giving me a perspective on, on how people, different people fought and felt. And, mm-hmm. um, and so that's something I think they get. What they don't have is a bit of the edge, yeah. which, uh, you know, I, I try to give to them. You know, I, sometimes I'll, I'll, uh, I'll sneak up behind my, my daughter. But, what are you going to do? How are you going to get out of this? What are you, you, know, you got the ears, yeah. you got the eyes, you got the, you know, so, yeah. um, 
So I do, I do, uh, I do, I do try to just alert them to the fact that yeah. the way they're living is is really, I mean, very different from the mm-hmm. way most people are living right now. Like, I didn't, I didn't leave this country until until I was, until I graduated college. Like I, I took like two flights before before that, and you know they've already been overseas. Right. And so uh, so so just reminding them of of you know where they're growing up and that it's unique and um and that it's important to take other perspectives into account that's something we do a lot of mm-hmm. whether it has the intended effect we'll see yeah yeah and okay. and i mean that's the thing that i think about constantly is how do i give my boys perspective because it seems that we've we've you know at least if you look at social media twitter things like mm-hmm. that it seems we've gotten away from the value of all being different Yet we all have a common goal. It's right. you think differently than me. I hate you. It seems it seems to be, and maybe that's just where my mind is. We can talk about that in a little bit. My, yeah. my inner chatter. Yeah. <laughs> inner chatter. Yeah. So but, let's go. Let's bring yeah. you back to high school. Let's get you back to high school because I know you end up going off to college and all. But I want to get that that understanding of you know what was your mindset going through high school? Uh, what was your high school years like uh, in, in Brooklyn? Or did you stay? Would you go to high school in Brooklyn? Did you bus out and go somewhere else? No, I did. So, so I went to, um, so here's what happened in high school to understand what happened in high school. We have to go back to the award ceremony in junior high school, Uh Okay, eighth grade award ceremony. And my parents are there. My grandparents are there and I'm watching like all these, all these friends of mine go up there for awards in math and science and so and, and, and most of them getting multiple awards and, and I get called up for, you know, award for, for gym class, basically. For, <laughs> hey, for there's nothing wrong with that. No, there's nothing wrong with that. No, I feel you, you that, know, that stings. Um, <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, if I stood up, you might think that this was a charity award. That's all I'm going to say. Here. No, I mean, I, I didn't play sports, but you know, uh, so I'll, I'll leave it at that. And I remember, so I stood up to get the award. I remember looking over at my grandparents who were, you know, who are like Holocaust survivors and like mm. everything is bad education. And I see them both like this, <laughs> you know, it's like looking down in disappointment. And so it really, so, but um, the reason I bring up the story is there was a switch that was flipped. It was a mm. motivational switch. Mm. I decided right there, I thought to myself, I know these other people who are getting these awards in, in, in math and English and whatever, and, and they're great, but I know I could do what they're doing. And, um, and so I just decided I'm going to, I'm going to focus. And, and so I then switched to high school and, you know, I, I, I got straight A's. I did really well. Uh, I never got a bad grade um, after that. And so that was a real switch. And so I was a super, super serious student in high school. Um, I still played sports. I did um, soccer and baseball and wrestling, um, a little bit of boxing, actually. Mm. That was my, my dad's yeah. last gift. Um, this, is, this is maybe worth 60 seconds. Um, actually, I'm not going to put a time limit on. I, I did a, an interview a couple of weeks ago, and the person who was hosting the interview was a Navy SEAL. Mm. And I said to him, you know what? There's one important thing I want to tell you. Just give me 90 seconds. And I, I did it. And I, I really thought I stuck the landing. So when I was done, I was like, so how did I do? How long? It was like 97 seconds. Wow. I'm like, that's pretty, that's pretty good, right? Yeah. And then his response, deadpan is, 
It depends if there was a bomb set to go off at 90 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> Those Navy SEALs, man, they're hardcore. <laughs> yeah, so so I'm not putting a time on No, it, don't. No, just don't. tell us. Um, so I got into, you know, I, I got into a really good college, an Ivy League school, and, you know, my dad, really serious, comes to me when, like, the last semester of high school, after I know where I'm going, he's like, all right, Ethan, there's no discussion about this. It's my final gift to you before you go off into the world, the big, scary world, mind you, of mm-hmm. like an Ivy League school. And uh, you got to take boxing lessons. You got to know how wow. to defend yourself in those college classes. And so <laughs> he, uh, he found this gym that this, it was called Cowboy Louis D's Gym. It was set up in this Great name. Rough, <laughs> rough area of Queens. Mm. And, and I got knocked around for, for a couple of months. Um, so I did that too. Um, but that, that was high school yeah. and, and I got to college and I, I knew how to defend myself. Yeah. Yeah. We're, to yeah. We're going to get to college. Uh, I do want to go back to the eighth grade moment because to me, motivation is fleeting, right? You have a moment, you're, you're super energized, you're super motivated, but then that motivation fails or, or it, it fades, I guess is a better way to put it. So what was that inner drive? I know that was the flip that switched on, but how did you keep that burn for the next four years in high school? Well, you know, I think part of it goes back to, to, to where I was growing up in Brooklyn and, and really not wanting to live that kind of life mm-hmm. and, and recognizing that there was a whole lot more to the world mm-hmm. than what was happening there. Um, and, and it, it, you know, it became a challenge, um, that, that I was, I was up for, for meeting that challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, that, that didn't, it, 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 it was what we would call in, in, in my, you know, technical terms, it was an intrinsic drive. This was not someone paying me to do mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. This was burning from within. Mm-hmm. Um, I had my, my sights set on doing something with my life. And I knew that getting good grades was a means to, uh, to doing that. Now I didn't know what the heck I wanted to do. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, where I grew up, if you did well in, in, in school, there were two paths available to you. Uh, one was becoming, uh, what, what I would call a real doctor, which is what my mom constantly reminds me of. You know, that's an MD, <laughs> not a PhD. Um, uh, or, or, or a lawyer, like, that's it. That, right. That's the whole world. Um, when I got to college, I saw there was a lot more out there than that, but, um, but yeah, I was able to maintain that motivation, which, which was crucial. And you know what the, the, what's interesting about that story is, is that it was a negative reaction that you saw from your grandparents. It yeah. wasn't a positive. It was, you reacted off of something that, that was negative that influenced you to say, okay, I'm now I'm going to buckle down. And that's interesting because you don't see that a, a lot. You see a lot more of that. There's been somebody positively influencing you and pushing you and guiding you and whatnot. But, you know, I, I can relate to that because there was a lot of negative things that happened in my life to where now I, it's basically a chip on my shoulder to say, here it is. I'm going. This is what yeah. I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a chip on the shoulder shoulder is a good way of describing it. You know, one of the things that I think helped me, though, in that moment of negativity was the messaging that I did get from my parents growing up, which was, if you put your mind to it, you could do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. So I had that positive message reinforced over and over again. Mm-hmm. And, and now I came to this realization, like, I believe that, 
Um, but now I had this realization, Hey, wait, you know, if I don't start putting more effort into this, I'm not going to actually get to that point. I was doing my homework on the school bus coming home. You know, Mm. I came home every day. My mom was like, don't you have any homework? I'm like, I did it already. And I did. Um, but, but clearly, you know, there was more that could be done. So, um, so I just, I just hit reset with how I, I approached school and life and, um, and, you know, knock on wood, it's worked out. And I love the way how you just earlier on just, you know, breezed over the University of Pennsylvania. I was going to say, know, like Penn, it, it, just the like, hard oh, work paid off. School, I just went to an Ivy League school. And I was like, wait, wait, wait I'm Arizona State grad. He's an Abilene Christian grad. We, we can't even we, spell Ivy League. <laughs> <laughs> so the hard work paid off. You go to the University of Pennsylvania. Tell us about that time there. What did you learn there while you were in school? Um, well, the first thing I learned um, was that I wasn't, I wasn't tall. So, so this just as, as an aside. So, so I'm five foot seven on a good day. Now, I don't know if it's the water or, or, or the gene pool or what, but in Brooklyn, I was, I was like a slightly above average height, uh, you know, and, and then I get to, uh, to Penn. I remember there were these fraternities that line the main drag, the main, we called it the um, locust walk. And there's this one fraternity with this beach volleyball court right on you know, the, the diag. And there were these guys shirts off year round playing mm. beach volleyball. And I'm looking at my, my God, <laughs> what is going on here? No one told me. You know, so, uh, so that was the first thing that uh, I humorously encountered. But um, so, so when I got to college, um, I hit another challenge, actually. Uh, I remember, you know, I had, I had loaded up you have to let me back up. No one, no one in my family had gone to a school like Penn. My dad didn't go to college. Um, I didn't even know what the university of Pennsylvania was until I started researching schools. It just wasn't on the radar. And so uh, I didn't, I didn't have anyone to coach me with respect to, Hey, here's how you decide which classes to take. Here's how to schedule them. So I made a huge rookie mistake. I, I scheduled five classes in a row starting at like 9 a.m. or 8 30, mm. you know, back to back to back, just get them over with. Right. And, you know, no one told me I'd be up until 3 a.m. every morning. <laughs> right. in the dorm. So, so I remember like this, you know, in calculus, I remember like learn a, a friend of mine told me this trick, you know, you, you, you hold your, your fingers to your eyes <laughs> to keep your eyes open. And I remember, so, so I ended up graduating, did not do good that first semester. Mm-hmm. Ended up with a, a 298 GPA. Um, <laughs> oh, I didn't do that. good that semester. Yeah. I just had a 3.0. No big deal. Uh, all right. All right. Well, you know, I, okay. I did, I, I'm not We're just messing yeah, with you. We're just messing with you. Ethan, appreciate you, man. Thanks. What'd you graduate <laughs> with? Thanks for the encouragement. <laughs> Set, you know? I, 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 no, we're just messing. Uh, we're just messing. I know, I know. Well, so, um, so I, I remember um, I got the grades, and I was like, "Whoa!" You know, I, I didn't get anything less than A's before that. You know, in mm-hmm. high school, and so now I've got. Whoa! I got a C, yeah. and um, and so I had to reinvent how I approached school again. I had to figure out how to like relearn how to study right. in college, how to take courses. And, um, and that's when I, I kind of said, you know what, I'm going to take a step back from this pre-med track 
which I didn't even know, really like. And I took all different yeah. sorts of classes. I took a class in, in folklore. I took a class in international relations and a class that my dad was like, you've got to just try it in psychology. Yeah. And, um, and that's when I really, I really fell in love uh, with, with a, a topic. Yeah. And, and that happened in my, the second semester of my freshman year. And, um, and then I just dove all in yeah. um, to psychology after that. Yeah, you know, we, we joke, but you got punched in the mouth in that moment. Yeah. I mean, not oh, yeah. physically, obviously, because, you know, you're, you had the boxing, boxing background, but you actually got punched in the mouth. And, and in that moment, else. yeah, and yeah. in that moment, you could have easily folded. You could have said, this isn't for me. You could, there's a hundred ways you could have reacted. But you said, you know what, I'm going to reset. I'm going to reinvent myself. So what was it about psychology that, that just captured your attention? What was the love there? Well, um, it, you know, the, it, it, I had this kind of, uh, let's see, uh, this like going back in time because, you know, the beginning, the first part of psychology, I'm learning about mice and rats and how mm-hmm. they learn things. And then about halfway through the semester, we get to the topic of, of introspecting, of, of what happens when bad things happen and you kind of go inside yourself to figure out what's going on. How can you come up with a solution? And when we came to that topic, I was reminded of all the conversations I used to have with my dad, uh, who used to tell me, hey, whenever, you know, you get punched in the mouth, search inside yourself for the answer. Turn your attention inward. Tap into that inner voice. You know, you know the answer. And come up with a solution and then move on. And, and here I came across people who were doing science on this issue. And, and the results were actually surprising because – some people, the I remember my professor telling me, really benefited from being able to search inside themselves for answers. Something's wrong. Well, hmm, what should I do? You know, inner voice stuff. Right. Like, how should I engage here? And they come up with a solution and move on. But other people really ended up suffering from doing that thing. So the moment something bad happened and they started to think about it, they'd start worrying and and spent and for lack of a better term, just spinning over stuff, uh-huh. right? Getting stuck, and and why that happened was a huge question for me. Like, why why do we we have this mind that can give us the edge in so many cases? And it certainly helped me in a lot of cases. But for other people, this amazing organ between our ears was getting them into trouble in in really profound ways. From from you know from the ball field and professional right. sports to to relationships to to people's physical health and so so that lit another spark and um, it really motivated me to uh, give up my dreams of playing for the Yankees and uh, right. pursue a PhD instead. Right. So did you continue through? Okay. So that was your freshman year when this happened, right? So you for the next what, three four years now. Yeah, three, three and a half years. Three and a half years. So you go through this process of that. Now you've made the decision. Did you end up graduating uh, with, with that degree or what was the degree you graduated? Yeah, I, I graduated with that degree. I worked in labs. I was a total pain in the butt to my buddies because um, actually the, the way I figured out I wanted to spend my life doing this uh, was I'd find myself you know, studying in the library for just midterms or finals or, or in a bookstore. And, and on breaks, I kind of mm. just go over to the, yeah. the psychology section of the bookstore and flip through the books. And then like on Friday or Saturday nights, I mean, you guys are going to love this. We'd be 
I'd be walking to the parties or the bars with my buddies. And, you know, you can imagine what they're talking about. Oh, yeah. Like, hey, what do you think about this idea from, you know, I heard about mm. in class. And they're looking at me like, dude, yeah. you, dude? beat yeah. it, nerd. Yeah. Night. And so, so you know, I, I thought to myself, if I'm spending my spare time thinking about these ideas, then why don't, why don't I spend my life getting, you know, yeah compensated to do this right that yeah. that seems like a good kind of job to have yeah. um in, in other words i i had discovered my passion and yeah. so yeah at an early age yeah, yeah so really. so yeah so so i was i was lucky there and then I, I went straight into graduate school um got my phd got 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 kicked uh you know punched in the face a few more times during that and um and then ended up in michigan well, let's let's talk about that uh you know you went from one school that we could never even get close to touching to another, <laughs> the University of Columbia, or sorry, Columbia, Columbia University. University yes. Sorry, Columbia University. Yeah. Let me get that right. I can't even say it right. Apparently, they had, they had a formidable uh, football program. Yeah, yeah. Had a what, what baby blue there. and white. Is that is that Columbia baby blue and white? Is that right? Yeah, you know the funny thing about about that stuff is so you know at Penn the top dogs on campus were were like the fencers, you know, mm-hmm. the fencers and yeah. the wrestlers. I remember going to see see the we were, we were the you know we were the quakers very formidable <laughs> um mascot um i remember go we we won the ivy league championships i think there were a hundred of us in in the stands at um, oh, wow. yeah so, <laughs> yeah. so then columbia columbia was even worse when it came to sports so so being in michigan is this whole new oh my gosh yeah. so so walk us through that you said you got punched in the mouth a few more times well, I got to I got to Columbia, and um, I ended up um, ended up um, working my my mentor. So the way PhD programs work is it's really this medieval um, process. It's like you're paired up with a master, uh-huh. and you know, like the Jedi master. You don't know much, and and then you just learn from them, and they kind of mold you into some kind of image of themselves. And so I worked with this. Um, this really famous guy named Walter Michelle. You might know him um, if you've ever heard of the marshmallow test. So you you give a kid a choice. You, they, you say you can have one marshmallow now, or mm-hmm. here are two marshmallows. marshmallows. If you yeah. wait, if you wait, yep. yeah. Come back. Have you guys heard about yes. this? Test? Oh yeah, yes, yep. absolutely. So he was he was the guy who developed that test. So you know he was like royalty mm. in in psychology, and and he was he was tough. Uh, he was tough to start. Um, I remember the first time I met him, I went over to his apartment. It was on Riverside Drive in New York City, super fancy. He was from Brooklyn also. Mm-hmm. I, so I thought, you know, hey. Yankees, yeah. you know, breaks the ice with everyone. Uh, so, you know, you're a sports fan, you like the Yankees. And he's, I don't watch sports. He's going to museums. And so it was, it was um it was an interesting experience, but, but he was tough. I would, I would write papers and he'd tell me that oh, this, you know, this isn't good. He might've used some other, other words. I mean, think of like a really tough coach. Bill Parcells. Bill Parcells, who, yep. who probably loved, loved his players yes. and wanted them to succeed, but he wasn't going to settle for anything less yep. than perfect. Yes. And and in fact, when you start, at least when I started with Walter, first two years were like Navy SEALs training. I mean, I would send him stuff at three in the morning. He'd call me up at six 
Wow. And with calm, I mean, it was like sleep deprivation, Navy right. SEAL. <laughs> and like, once you get past those first two years, then it was, you know, we were buddies, had a father son kind of relationship, but, uh, but it was really intense. Yeah. So, you know, an interesting concept that, that I always think about is, is when you chase a passion or a dream, you're willing to go through the crap. You're willing to go through those 3 a.m., 6 a.m. sleep deprivation. Did you find in those moments like this isn't worth it? Or were you just so invested in that idea that it didn't matter what you had to do to get there? Well, you know, I, um, I think about this a lot because I'm in the, um, the mentor position now for a lot of students. And I don't do this just for the record. Um, <laughs> no calls uh, either direction in the evening, in the more early morning hours. Um, I think what allowed me to get through it was having the mindset that I'm here to learn. And this is someone who can really teach me. And I knew he was, you know, it, it was never abusive. It was, it was tough. And there's a difference between tough and abusive. So it never came close to the latter. Um, but, but I just recognize that, that I don't know, um, I don't know a lot and I'm here to learn. And I, I think having that kind of humility was, mm. was really helpful. And, um, and I, I, I'm always impressed when I see that in, in others, just recognizing that we don't always have the answers yes. and I didn't have yeah. most of them back then. <laughs> so, so I was, I was happy to be teached and, um, you know, so yep. it, that, that made it easier. Absolutely. So, so let, let's move forward from there. Okay. So you're, you're in school, you're, you're about to graduate. What, what was your plan? Was there a game plan in place to where, okay, here's the next step. This is what I want to do in my life. You know, I, I, I'd say at every major transition, there was a big leap of faith. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember when I applied to graduate school, I didn't, I thought I wanted this PhD, you know, but I didn't really know. Um, And I just kind of went with it and uh, it took a while, about a year for me to set in and say, all right, this is for me. And then at the next level, when it came time to, to get a faculty position, um, you know, I I was just, in retrospect, I feel like I was really naive. I applied to to four places. Uh, I got interviews at two. Mm-hmm. And and then I got one of those jobs and it turned out to be a dream job here mm-hmm. at the University of Michigan. And, um, uh, you know, I came here, uh, asked myself repeatedly for the first several months, you know, all inside my head, by the way, uh, <laughs> you know, when are they going to figure out they made a mistake? <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I mean, like I, I get here and there are these super famous people in, in, in my field. Like, you know, I'm reading about them in textbooks and watching them on TV a few months ago. And now they're knocking on my door, asking me to go out for lunch or asking me for my opinion on stuff. And well, what is going on here? So there's a lot of, there's a lot yep. of inner monologue happening, Absolutely. a lot of chatter at that point. Um, but, um, but Michigan ended up being an absolute dream. Um, this is a place that, uh, I, I describe it like people have big hearts, big brains, and really small egos. Mm. And that is a killer combination. Yeah. For Unbelievable. Me. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. And you don't, you, know, you don't see that in a lot of places. So people work together, they collaborate. It's not like I'm going to do my thing because this is me and my yeah. world. It's let's work on these important problems, questions. And 
Um, and it's been incredibly um, fun and rewarding to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's it's a hard thing to get everybody to submit their ego and work together. You know, I, I may know a lot, but I'm going to be humble and come together with the team and, and come together with everybody. That's a great lesson there. So you mentioned earlier your, your children and, and you're married. At what point did you meet your wife in this whole process? So I met my wife. Oh, I, I, I have psychology to thank for, for that. So I, I met her. Um, I almost screwed it up because it was psychology connected us and almost, I'll tell you how that happened. So I was take my junior year, I was taking a, a psychology class at night. And I remember I, I lived about 15 minutes, um, a 15 minute walk away from the, you know, where the class was. I remember there was this, this cute girl who like the moment I turned off my block, she was like 15 feet in front of me. And it was a little, we- a little creepy because like every place she turned, I just happened to have to turn. Oh, oh really? Yeah, right. All oh, right. Yeah, even. Was, okay. You know, it okay. was a little strange. Yeah, right? a little creepy. <laughs> a little creepy. So you know, this is happening for fifteen minutes, and I, I, I'm, I'm conscious of this. So I start like now hanging back a little bit more because I don't want to be, you know, misperceived as as a creep. But it turns out she ends up in the class that I'm taking. And so, um, so, you know, it wasn't so creepy. We were actually going to the same place and, um, you know, I, I, I registered her and then second class, um, when we were done, you know, I approached her, Hey, you know, introduced myself, did, did my thing, which is not very elegant, <laughs> mind you, but it, it, it worked. And it turns out she was my next door neighbor and, um, and we hit it off. And, and it's funny because I remember that, she used to try to, she didn't like the class very much. Like, well, let, you know, come on, just let's not go to this. Let's not go this week. Let's go we'll do whatever. And I was like, no, nah, I got, I, I got to go. I got to go. It's grad school. Come on. You know, you're killing me here. And so, um, so I did go, but, um, but we, we ended up um, connecting and um, we won't both moved to New York city uh, for graduate school together and, and have been together ever since. So she's a, a psychologist as well. She's a nutritionist. So she's a, she's a psych major, but uh-huh. then she went into nutrition, um, which, yeah. which ends up having a ton of psychology. Absolutely. Yeah. Boy. 100%. Your kids yeah. are in trouble, bro. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, yeah. So that leads you up to what you're doing today. And, and we do want to dive into that. You, you, we mentioned the book uh, a second ago, which we both just ordered and yeah. we're about to dive into ourselves. Uh, chatter, the voice in our head, why it matters and how to harness it. So what is the voice in our head? Where does it come from? Let's lay some ground rules there about the voice in our head. I want to take a quick break from the episode. We're sitting here talking about chatter with Ethan Cross. So uh, allow me to be the inner voice in your head and let you know about uh, our sponsor for today's episode, Choctaw Casino and Resort in Durant, Oklahoma. We talk about them every single week. Uh, Just how awesome of an escape um, just right up the road, honestly, not very far from here in DFW, um, but how awesome of an escape it is. Take your wife, take your family, get up there. They've got concerts all summer long. They've got a brand-new pool uh, expansion there, just tons of great, fun activities up there at Choctaw Casino and Resort. Take yourself up there, take your family up there, and enjoy and have a good time. Now back to the episode. The voice in your head is – it's our ability to use language silently, right? So if I asked you to just say, you know, um, 
I'm going to give you a sentence to say, and I want you to repeat it in your head, okay? The Giants are the greatest team of all time. I knew you were going to do that. I can't do it. I just that's, can't. That's not, I can't digest that one. I'm, that screaming, one just, it, I'm screaming it in my head right now. I keep, on, I keep throwing it back out at you. Just, I can't digest that. Can you imagine the response when I go give a talk at Ohio State? Oh, oh go blue. they boo you out of that place for sure. Yeah, not good. Not good. So, it, you know, so we, we can all do, if you've got like a mind, if you could talk out loud, you could mm-hmm. talk to yourself basically. Mm-hmm. And we do that. And the thing that I think is not on everyone's radar is like, this is a real superpower that lets us do many different things. Like it lets us do things like remind ourselves of what's on our to-do list or grocery list. You go to the grocery store. What do I got to get up? Uh, cheese sticks, eggs, you know, mm-hmm. milk. That's your inner voice. Um, but then our inner voice lets us do other things too, like uh, plan and, and simulate for the future. So before I have a big presentation, I'll go over what I'm going to say in my head. Right. Or people often report before a date, they'll often rehearse what they're going to say to the person. Uh-huh. Um, our inner voice lets us coach us, coach ourselves. And we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, I'm sure. Uh, come on, man, you could do it. You know, like, which is, can be really, really useful in particular in the context of sports and performance, mm-hmm. right? This ability to actually motivate ourselves Yes. Like we're talking to ourselves, yes. like we're our own coach. Um, and then the other thing our inner voice lets us do is it lets us tell stories about our, our life that give shape to who we are. You know, like things happen. You lose the big game. You you choke. I'm not pointing at either of you, by the way. I'm talking about people in general. <laughs> yes, right. 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 So, um, you know, but life is filled with adversity. And when that happens, we've got to make sense of it. And, and the inner voice helps us do it. Right. We, we, we figure out these, ah, well, you know, I, I missed, I missed, I missed the shot and um, there's no explanation, but I know I'm going to practice hard and, 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 and do better next time. Like that's one story someone could tell themselves. Another story is you missed a, st- a shot. Now you bleeping suck. Yes. You're, no good. Yeah. you're a total, you're useless. You're, and you could see that's another narrative and those stories we tell ourselves are powerful. They could put us on totally different trajectories. And yeah. so that, that's a good segue into the dark side of the inner voice, which is what really the book is about. I think of chatter as when this inner voice that we have really, it gangs up and cons- against us. You know, we, we, we try to use our voice to solve problems, but we end up worrying and stressing mm-hmm. over things repeatedly in ways that make life miserable in ways that make it really hard for our, us to do our jobs, to perform at a high level and in ways that impact our health. And, um, and the good news is that there are tons of things, science-based tools people can use to, to harness that inner voice and make it work for them rather than against. And that's what I study. That's what the book's about. Okay. I want to go down that road, especially, you know, specifically on the narratives, uh, cause there's so many different paths we can go down there as far as the inner voice, but what led you to want to focus on, uh, the inner voice? I mean, was it something you learned in school or did you just run into this? Well, it, it goes back to my dad, right? So my dad was telling me all along that the inner voice, you know, he didn't call it the inner voice. He called it, my dad was so corny and dramatic. He, he would say the kernel of truth, you know, yeah. Would, <laughs> you know like, yeah, find the kernel, Ethan, you know, like something's, ah, I got rejected. I asked her out. She said, no, 
what's the kernel, Ethan? Go inside, <laughs> find the kernel. <laughs> like, don't say that in front of anyone yeah. else. <laughs> Keep it down. <laughs> You're killing me here. Um, but but so he was always coaching me to to find that to tap into that inner voice, come up with that solution, create that that positive narrative. And it served me really, really well. I mean, we've talked about some of the um, curveballs that life has thrown at me that I, that I was able to manage. There are loads of other ones that I felt that I experienced too, like we all do. Like uh-huh. crap happens, you gotta deal with it. Um, but, but when I looked into the science behind this, what I found is that people were equally likely to be harmed by their inner voice that just going inside and searching for answers doesn't always help people. Sometimes it makes our problems much, much worse because then we get get stuck in these negative thought Mm -hmm. loops. Like we suck. What if this happens again? You know, the coach hates me or, you know, any number of forms that, that, that lead to things like anxiety and depression. So that, that was a puzzle that I wanted to try to solve. Right. So why is it that sometimes this inner voice is a tool that can help us, but other times it can really harm us. And, and, and how do you, how do you make it help you if it's harming you? Yeah. That was going to be my question. Is the inner voice on default negative? Meaning is, is it a, is it a survival instinct to think negatively first? And then we've got to work to think positively, or is it genetic where some people just think more, how does that dynamic work? Well, um, you know, there's differences and, and the differences between people are, are influenced in part by our genes, in part by our early childhood experiences, where we grew up. Interestingly, we, we've even learned that um, I think we're all around the same, the same vintage age-wise here. Um, like when we were in school, we learned that there was genes and then there was your family and environment mm-hmm. and each influenced who you are. Uh, what we've learned more recently is actually your your genes and your environment, they mix. So you could think about your genes as kind of like having a piano inside inside the cells of your body. And, and the, your genes are the keys of the piano. But what we've learned is that your experiences in the world can influence what keys on that piano get pressed, mm-hmm. what genes get actually expressed and influence your behavior. So so your genes and, and, and experiences, they mix together in really interesting um, and powerful ways. Um, so, so, you know, that determines in part what we say to ourselves. But the, the other important thing to know is there's this great finding, which is bad is stronger than good. Mm. And what it means is we are, we're more sensitive to the bad stuff in life than the good stuff. And it makes sense if you think about it, because the bad stuff can kill us, yeah, right? right? Exactly. So, so if you think about it, we want to be more focused on a potential loss than mm-hmm. on a potential gain. And so it is true that um, the inner voice tends to be more active by bad stuff. Um, but whether it takes the bad and converts it into a good or just makes the bad worse, that's what we have control over. Got it. Yeah, you talk about, you know, we're told often to shut off that voice or silence that voice. But what you're trying to do is you're saying, no, let's re-educate. Let's reset. Let's remotivate. You know, I, I, um, I, 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 well, I, I shouldn't use this expression. I was gonna say, I wouldn't wish, um, 
a silenced inner voice of my worst enemy. Maybe the worst enemy I might. But, <laughs> Maybe uh, Cowboys fans, yeah. but other, other than yeah. that. Um, but uh, there was, I tell a story in the book of this woman who really struggled with her inner voice, worries, ruminations. And, and then she had a stroke and the stroke wiped out her ability to temporarily use language mm. to talk to other people, which mm. is a common, common mm. consequence of having a stroke. It didn't just wipe out her ability to talk to other people. It wiped out her ability to talk to herself. Wow. Wow. And initially she talked about this as being this, this kind of exhilarating experience because along with her words leaving her, so did her ability to worry about stuff mm-hmm. and, and ruminate. But then after, after a little while, she also began to realize that without her words, she didn't really have a sense of who she was. She mm-hmm. lost her ability to yeah. make sense of her experiences in the world. And that was really, really uncomfortable. And I think that highlights the fact that like this inner voice we have, it is a tool. It's a tool of your mind. We don't want to get rid of that tool. We don't want to throw it out the window. We want to figure out how to harness it, how to make it work for us rather than against us. Yeah. And, and that's not a message you hear um, promoted often in, in popular culture, right? It's often, I just want to be positive and yeah. silence this damn inner voice. This inner voice in my head, this is, a, I mean, I love it. I mean, this is sound, that sounds wacky, but mm-hmm. I mean, I'll, I'll often go, go for a walk and I'll just let my mind go. I'll fantasize about like yeah. the positive stuff, the vacations, the conquests, like good things that can happen. I'll, I'll think about past experiences and that, that gives my life real meaning and value. So are you, are you saying that it's, I mean, negative, that, that negative voice is going to be there every once in a while, right? I mean, I, I, and I, let me give you an example of, of how, how that voice in my sports career has always affected me. It's leading up to the big game, the Super Bowl. And you're walking, you're leading up to the game. There's that negative, you know, voice that's in there every once in a while where you start to doubt some of the things that your, your capabilities, right? Oh, I got to cover, you know, so-and-so in the slot. Uh, I don't have any help. I can't get beat in front of, uh, you know, 15 million people. Uh, this is this voice. It's like a ramp up, ramp up, ramp up. And this is, I'm speaking specifically to me. I've had these thoughts, even when you get into the, even when I've gotten into the locker room before the game, I'm still having these thoughts. And it's something about walking down the tunnel where it just flips, totally flips. And I'm, it's, it becomes all, basically this narcissistic voice to where I'm the baddest son of a bitch ever. Like I'm going to shut down the guy. I I have extreme confidence. I'm not going to back down and I'm walking down this tunnel. Like I can't, I'm floating on, I'm floating. I'm not even walking anymore. I'm that, that positive and confident in who I am. And that dynamic that you just described is in part what makes you the incredible player that you are. Hmm. And, and so, so let me translate that for you into, into psychological terms and to, into, into terms that anyone can, um, can benefit from really. And I talk about this in the book. So 
um, when you put a person in a situation involving social threat, which is exactly what you're describing, like 15 million people looking at you, evaluating you, all of your, your, your brothers on that team, looking at you, your coach, your family, like this is like, we are a social species, Mm -hmm. human beings, right? right? We care about other people and what they think of us. You are in arguably one of the most stressful situations you can imagine. Uh, we basically ask ourselves two questions, and, and we often do this subconsciously. The first thing we do is we look at the situation and we say, what's required of me? And then we ask ourselves, do I have the resources to manage what this situation, to deal with what's required of me? If you ask the, yourself those two questions and you say, can't do it, that elicits what we call a threat response. And a threat response basically sinks behavior. So it leads to uh, your heart starts pumping blood really fast, Mm -hmm. but all of the arteries and veins that carry the blood in your body, they, they clench up. So you got a lot of blood flowing out of your heart, but into a smaller space. Mm -hmm. That's not really good. You get jammed up biologically Mm. and, and, and then you start worrying about stuff and ruminating. Oh my God, I can't do it. Which ends up often bringing those, fears into reality creates what we call self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm -hmm. So that's the bad thing. Now what you, the the transition you made though, is you answered those questions and said, you know what? I can do it. And I'm going to kick ass. I'm going to destroy this other team. That's what we call a challenge response. And a challenge response has the exact opposite set of outcomes associate associated with it. Your heart starts beating really fast, but then your, your, the, the, your arteries and veins, they expand. So mm. you're, you've got all this blood that you need to get to your extremities, right? Mm-hmm. Your body needs the fuel, but your arteries are relaxing, allow it to flow freely. And then in your head, you're constantly reminding yourself, I can do this. I can do it, which in turn improves performance. And so, um, so that psychological shift that you engaged in is critical to performing well in high performance situations. Uh, I talk about, there's a tool that, that people often use and that we've studied in the lab that, that can actually help people go from one state threat to another. It's something we call distant self-talk and um, bear with me for a second because it's going to sound a little odd, but there's science behind it. It's a simple language shift. And so what it involves doing is, trying to coach yourself through the situation in your head, like, like you were giving advice to someone else. Like what would you tell your buddy on the team? Right. Um, or what would your coach tell you? Right. What's, what's remarkable. What we've learned is like, we are great advisors to other people, <laughs> right. But we're not always great advisors to ourselves. You know, we, we do studies. We ask people to tell us what's streaming through their head during like when the lights are on and the stakes are high, the stuff they tell us, they report saying to themselves, they would never say to another human being. Some of them don't even feel comfortable putting it down on paper because it's so embarrassing, right? The dark thoughts we often have. And this is healthy people. We're not talking about people who have, you know, real full-blown psychiatric problems, just, just run of the mill. Um, but we would never say those things to our teammates. Our coaches don't right. say those things to us. And so how do you be your own coach? You use your own name. And the second person pronoun mm. you, you say, all right, Ethan, 
man up. Here's what you're going to do in this situation. <laughs> wow. Right. You know, this, so th- this is a tool that, that we find puts people into this coaching mode in ways that could be really helpful. It's funny you man. say that. <laughs> and I don't, awesome. I don't want to speak for Darren, but we were just talking about this because we were, you know, we were doing our research and we saw, you know, one of the studies that you did about the two groups, mm. one was using the language you're talking about. The other one was using personal first person language. And yeah. the one using the language you're talking about actually performed better in the interview. And yeah. so Darren and I were sitting here talking about this and I think, man, I do that all the time. I tell you, say, I suck or I can do this. And I'm always talking about first person. And Darren said, I talk, I talk say Darren person. all the time. I say my name. And I'm like, and where did you learn that? Nobody, nobody's ever told me that. No, but it's, you know, and we, we ended up doing the quiz before we came on. We went to the mm-hmm. website and did the quiz. How did you guys do? Uh, I, I got two. seven out of eight. Yeah, I got six out of eight. Which I want to talk about now. the one I missed. Here, so. But All right. yeah, we got a question about that. But like, it's almost narcissistic in a way. And well, I've always you- told myself, don't be that narcissist in public. But when I'm, but when I'm faced with it, it's Darren, it's Woody, it's any name that I could come up with. And I'm talking, I'm using that third person voice and and it's direct at me in in that situation. So you go ahead. Let let me, let me alleviate any concerns you have about the narcissism stuff. So um, in all of our studies, this is people doing this privately and, and, and usually silently in their head. And, and what we, what we've learned is that, this is a it's a this is an emotion regulation tool. So this this helps people control their emotions and and perform better under stressful situations. Um, we don't find links between a person's tendency to do this and narcissism. In fact, one of my favorite examples to to an anecdote, which really to, for me powerfully highlights how this isn't narcissism has to do with a girl named Malala Yousafzai, who she's the youngest person to ever win the Nobel Peace Prize. Mm. And her story is really an amazing one. Uh, she, she grew up in Pakistan, and for, as from the time she was a little girl, she believed that girls should be able to get an education just like boys can. Mm-hmm. And the Taliban found out about this, and they, um, they plotted to assassinate her. Right. And one day while she was taking the bus home from school, um, an assassin boarded the bus and shot her in the, in the, in the face. Oh, and she ended up making a full recovery and winning the Nobel prize for, um, right. for all of her advocacy work. And around the time she won the prize, she went on the John Stewart show, the daily show to talk about her experience. And he asked her what went through your head when, when you discovered that the Taliban were, were coming to get you. And she, she said, she, I'm going to butcher the quote a little bit, but this is almost verbatim. She said, you know, I used to think, what would I do if the Tale come to get me? And then I would say to myself, Malala, just take a shoe and hit him. And then I would think to myself, but if you hit the Tale, you're no different from the Tale. So in other words, here you've got a person contemplating arguably one of the few conditions that is more mm-hmm. stressful than playing in the Absolutely. Super Bowl. Like <laughs> yes. Assassin coming to kill her. Mm-hmm. And what does she do in her head when she's simulating how she's going to respond? She starts coaching herself. Like she's talking to someone else, giving herself advice. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I, I challenge people to call her a narcissist. Right. Nobel, Nobel peace prize. Yeah. Um, so the, the thing is, I think there's a difference between, 
talking to yourself out loud in front of the world Mm -hmm. in an interview and, um, and doing it privately. And, uh, and I think that's why it's sometimes linked with, with narcissism, but, but all of our data show it can be, it's a really easy to use tool that can benefit people. God, that's fascinating. Mm -hmm. It's, it's fascinating that in one context, it's totally, it's totally healthy. In another context, it's like that guy's an asshole. Right. Yeah. So that, that's, <laughs> yeah. That's but so it, got, it speaks to, and I, I want to stay along that line, you know, specifically in sports. And even, you know, like if I'm doing a speaking engagement, it's sort of the same mentality of there's some doubt sometimes leading up to the speaking engagement. And then that, when that switch hits, it is, you know, in third person. So in talking that oh, through the years, even when I was in college, I would hear coaches tell us, hey, play the game in your head continuously play the game in your head, visualize yourself doing such. And when I would do that, there was an extreme confidence because I would do that, you know, inside my own head, be coaching myself up, myself up on certain techniques or whatnot. And there was a pot. I mean, it was instant positive feedback that I was like a confidence builder for me over and over again. This is so what's remarkable about that, this particular tool is how quickly we find it works. It's like a switch goes off. Like a lot of tools for managing your inner voice and your emotion, they take time and effort to implement. But when people switch from from I to using their own name, it I, I like to call it like a psychological jujitsu move. Mm. It just it just flips your perspective. And the reason we think that happens is if you think about like when do we use names? Like almost all the time that we use names. We use them when we think about other people. Right. And so that link between a name and someone else in your, in your brain, it's so strong. The idea is when you use your own name, it's, it's turning on the, the brain machinery for thinking about others, for putting us into this coach mode. Mm-hmm. And that's why it works so quick. So this is my go-to, like, you know, I've given hundreds and hundreds of, of presentations and, you know, sometimes the stakes are, are really high and, and I still get butterflies. And, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes like uh, an organizer can, can pull an audible on me in the last moment, you know, I'm like, Oh God, this is not, how am I going to manage this? I'm not, all right, Ethan, you know, I channel my high school wrestling coach. Mm-hmm. I call myself sometimes by my, by my wrestling team nickname, you know, just like you, different names come yeah. in there. And I'm yeah. like, you know, I'm not going to tell you what the nickname was. It was a terrible, terrible nickname. No, you got to tell it. You, you got to say it. So, it you got to say it. Exclusive content here. <laughs> You're going to laugh. Go ahead. I won't laugh. Trust me. I'm, I'm going to hey. challenge you not to okay, laugh. Okay. We won't laugh. All right, no laughing laugh. here. Mousetrap. <laughs> I had to laugh. I <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was doing I wasn't going to laugh until you laughed. <laughs> until you said mousetrap, I wasn't going to laugh. I'll tell you, tell you, I'll tell you the, the mousetrap, just for read, for listeners who are curious and aren't, you know, into wrestling. We went against my, my freshman year, we went against this other team, and they were known for this one move that if they get you in this move, lights out, you're done, you're pinned. Right. And there was one counter, and it's, it's called the mousetrap. It's like you're trapping the mouse, you know, in the right. And I was the only person on the team to, to implement the, def, the move, and I won. And so from then on, you know, yeah, yeah, the like, my buddies are like the Beast and Hercules, <laughs> and I'm mousetrap. Mouse so. 
That's, that's how we're referring you the rest of the episode. <laughs> hey, Mousetrap, what do we do about... <laughs> oh, yeah, one of the, you talked about the quiz. One of the, one of the questions that, that I met... The, the only, hey, wait a minute. First of all, can I we ask... Here, the only question I missed. Can we ask this? Because other people are going to be doing the quiz. So can we ask this question? Oh, that's true. Should, do, do you... Should yeah, we... Spoil yeah, alert yeah, or no? You, okay. Yeah, no, it's all okay. good. Let, all let, right. let's, we'll, we'll give your pa- the listeners exclusive content. There we year. go. How, how about we do this? Pause the episode right now. Go take the quiz and then come back. Yeah, How about that? There you go. All right. The the one about venting emotions reduces harmful mental chatter. I said this was true. Obviously, I was incorrect there. So I assumed, hey, yeah, get it out. Get it out of your head. V- verbalize it. T- that, that, that Now, obviously, I understand that why long-term is not a good thing, but why is that not helpful to vent your emotions? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought this one up, and I, I would not feel bad about getting it wrong because this is one of the most – um, frequently misunderstood phenomenon. So there's a huge myth out there about venting and, and our culture perpetuates it because we often hear if something's bothering you, find someone to just get it out yes. and unload. Yep. And there's been a ton of research on this. And what we've learned is venting your emotions. This, this is really good for creating tight friendship bonds between two people. Like it, 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 it feels good to know that there's someone out there that cares enough about me that they're willing to listen and hear mm-hmm. what happened to me. And so, um, so that can feel really good in the moment. But if all you do is vent, what ends up happening is you leave the conversation and all these negative thoughts are super active in your head. Right. So you've just talked about what what's driving you nuts about, you know, the cowboys or the, the, the giant. You can't believe they did that. That son of a bleep, bleep, bleep. Man, what would you do if they did that to you? That bleep, 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 bleep. And so then you like people are animated and upset when they're done. And so in terms of the chatter, venting is bringing people closer together, but it's not doing anything to rid you of those negative yeah. thought loops that can be really destructive. So the best kinds of conversations between two people when it comes to chatter, they do two things. You do want to let the person get their emotions out to a certain degree. It is important uh-huh. to express your feelings and let the person you're talking to learn about what happened to you. But ideally, at a certain point in the conversation, the person you're talking to you starts starts pushing you to reframe your experience, to think differently about, all right, so all right, so that you know they 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 did a low blow move on the on the field, but look, that's a part of football. So how are you going to manage that next time without losing your cool? Oh. Or you know you got dumped by someone in a relationship. Oh man, that that was harsh the way they let you down. But you look, more people out there. There are more things you could do. Or here's how I've dealt with it. And so the idea is that the person you're talking to, because usually the bad thing hasn't happened to them that you're talking to them about. They're in an ideal pers- pers- uh, position to give you a, a, some sense of the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is often often really relieving, right? Because when we're stuck experiencing chatter, the thing that we're worried about or angry about or sad about, it, it's the entire world. It consumes us. Right. But if they can cue us to, to just step back a little bit and, and, and see that bigger picture, we often realize – Hey, there's a lot more going on than just this, and that can make us feel better. We're going to wrap up here in a minute on ways that we can harness and educate ourselves beyond just speaking to yourself in third person. But 
really quickly, you mentioned you have a, a soon-to-be sixth grader, a soon-to-be second grader, daughters. Yes. How are you handling social media with them? How can parents educate? How can we prepare? Where does social media play with all this? Social media is a tough one, Um, especially from the parenting point of view. We've been doing in my lab, we actually do research on social media and its effects on well-being. And, um, you know, the results aren't always very nice. And so I think it's really easy when kids in particular go on social media and they start seeing these like amazing accomplishments of others and comparing their own lives against them. It can make them feel bad. So, um, one thing that we do is uh, I, I teach my kids about social media. So they're not on social media. It's not, it's not necessary right now for either of them to be on mm-hmm. in the sense that some of their friends are on, but others aren't. They're not missing out on opportunities because they're off it. And so we're going to keep them off for as long as we can. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm beginning to see with the sixth grader, though, yeah. you know, some, some yeah. real interest. And... And what I do is I try to teach her about it. I teach like, here's what's fascinating about social media. So when I started doing research on this over 10 years ago, we didn't have a playbook to understand what social media is and how navigating it in different ways can influence how we feel. Over the past 10 years, we've learned a lot. What we've learned is social media is a new environment that we spend a lot of time in. And just like the offline world, we can navigate social media in ways that are helpful or harmful to us. And so it's like the offline world growing up in Brooklyn, I learned from a young age, and my parents helped teach me this, that if I went to the wrong neighborhoods and spoke to the wrong people the wrong way, big, big trouble. But if I, you know, went to other neighborhoods and spoke to other people other ways, I'd you know, benefit and everything in between. Right. So like there were lessons about how to navigate this physical world in a way that helps me. Um, I think the same is true of social media. There are ways of like social media can do some good for us. It can connect us with other people. It can like give us support. It can help us uh, keep abreast of what's going on in the world, but you know, it can lead us astray too. If you get caught up in cyberbullying and uh-huh. comparing yourself to others. And so I talk to my kids um, about this, you know, usually these are the walks where my, my second grader tells me I'm being bowling, but, um, yeah. <laughs> but, but I try to educate them about this in the same way that I do how, how to conduct themselves in the, in the, in the physical world in the offline mm-hmm. world in ways that I hope will help them. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, there's so many ways like, and I'm, I'm listening to you talking and, and I'm starting to think about, you know, where we are as a country right now, as a world, and the anxiety is, is just quadrupled, you know, specifically through COVID um, addiction. I mean, how many, there's so many ways that, you know, in what, in what we're talking about right, right now and how to, to eliminate the chatter and maybe, Turn that and turn that chatter into some uh, into confidence and and in ways eliminate some of the the anxiety. Can you give us some some help in that in that uh, as we move forward there? Yeah, totally. So, um, so let me let me give people a framework that that I find really helpful to think about this. There are things you could do on your own. Lots of tools to manage your chatter on your own, and and like the, talking to yourself in the third person. That's one way to do it. coach yourself, give yourself advice. Like you were giving advice to your best friend. Another thing you could do on your own. If you're dealing with an acute stressor, 
um, like playing in the Super Bowl. Uh, <laughs> you know, my, a big acute stressor. <laughs> yeah. think, think about how you're going to feel, you know, a, a year from now, five years from now, 20 years from now, after it's over. Usually our emotions fade, our negative experiences with time and reminding yourself, like with COVID, COVID sucks, right? right? Stank for me. And, you know, I, well, how am I going to feel about this in six months when, when we're vaccinated and, you know, life is back to normal. That gave me, that gave me hope uh-huh. that things would get better, made me feel better. So there are lots of things you could do on your own. And I talk about a lot of other ones in the book. Then another set of tools comes from our relationships with other people. And we talked about like with the venting discussion, um, other people in our, in our life can be either assets or liabilities. So you, and if you just talk to people who, who just stir you up, that's not going to help right. you with your chatter. Right. But if you've got the right, I think of this as like having an advisory board, like who are my chatter buddies? Who are the three people I could turn to? They're going to listen to me and then give me advice to help me through this advice uh-huh. that I value. Uh-huh. Um, having that chatter board, I think can be really powerful. And as can thinking really carefully about who you go to help, who you seek out help from, uh-huh. right? Because uh-huh. it's, like there's some people who love me a lot and I love them. And I know, I know they love me because like our DNA links us. Right. But uh-huh. I don't go to them <laughs> with my chatter because uh-huh. I know it just makes it worse. They just, they just, so who are the people who really help you go to those people? Um, and then there are other ways you could, you could uh, harness your relationships um, that I get into as well. I mean, some things are simple, like um, affectionate touch between, you know, like, partners. I mean, uh-huh. touch is powerful, right? You don't want to go around touching your, your coworkers and colleagues. Right. Um, um, but you know, your partners, your kids, your close friends, when a baby comes into this world and they are writhing in pain, what do we do to soothe them? We hold oh, them, we touch yeah. them and, 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 and an affection embrace that releases stress fighting chemicals that can be really useful. Uh-huh. So that's another thing. The last bucket though, is are things you could do in the world, your environments. And um, I think these are really fascinating tools. And so if I just take a couple minutes to tell you about yeah. some of these, I think they'll Please. hit home. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, you guys watch tennis? Yes. Our producer, you can't see yeah. on screen, is a tennis player. So she absolutely watches it. But yeah, yes. definitely. Okay. So, so here's, a, here's a quiz. You know, I'm not a professor, as I do it for a living. So you'll have to forgive me, right? It, p- producer might want to get it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just like yell, yell us the answer if you know it. <laughs> uh, yeah, give, give, give the answer. Uh, you, you guys, my ISIS well. Rafael Nadal, yep. beyond being known for being one of the greatest tennis players of all time, what else is Nadal known for doing on the tennis court? On the court. On the court, like trick shots between legs. No, they know he's a killer at the I French Open. That's a good guess. What, yes. about, what about your producer? Is a nervous oh, tick. Oh yeah, he's always pulling on his shorts and his there yeah, and his, and his ears and his yeah. yeah. So not only is he digging up his butt for wedgies <laughs> and you know, but he does it every time. Him. Yeah, he does it every time, and he does it the exact same way every time. Mm. So every time he comes on the tennis court, it starts when he comes on the tennis court. He always carries rackets in one hand and his gear in another, and he walks his bench. He puts them down in a certain sequence. Then he turns yeah. to the crowd. 
starts bouncing on his two feet as he undoes his jacket. Then he positions his water bottle and power drink in a certain way on a diagonal to the court, takes a sip of one, then another, and then puts them back carefully. And then between serves, he's doing this. You know, he's pick, he's picking the wedgie. You know, I remember yeah. watching him with like a, my grandmother. She's like, oh, so disgusting. <laughs> uh, so, so, but but he's asked, and he's been asked about this, and so he says, first thing he's asked is like, what's the hardest thing you struggle to do on the tennis court? And and the two of you as athletes can you know resonate. Like, what's the hardest thing you struggle with in the field? His answer is not returning his opponent's backhand or making sure his serve stays in bound. He says, the hardest thing I struggle to do is manage that voice inside my head. Mm, mm. And he turns to these rituals to help him do that. Mm. A ritual, what a ritual is, is it's a rigid sequence of behaviors that you do the exact same way every time. And it's a sequence of behaviors that have meaning. Right. So it could be totally odd things, but you do it like, you know, when you're in the huddle, the say you say the same thing every time before you break right. or, you know, before the free throw, you, you, you know, you bounce three times, you shake your shoulder. I, I yeah. yeah. right. But you know, you, you yeah. get the deal. Here's how this works. There's been research on this. And what we've learned is rituals aren't just these little quirks. Rituals provide people with a sense of control and order when our inner voice, when our chatter is stirring, when it's brewing, it often feels like we don't have control, right? Our thoughts are in control. You suck. You're, what are you going to do? Oh, my God. And by, by creating order in the world, that compensates for that, that feeling like we're not in control, gives us a sense of control, a sense of order, a sense that we can really manage the situation, um, which research shows can actually – lead to improvements in performance and make people feel better. So that's one thing you could do when you're under stress is do a mini ritual right right, right, right before you. I say the same thing to myself before I go on stage, right? Silently. I say exactly the same thing every time and, you know, take a deep breath and then I go like, it's a little mini ritual. Um, This is also one of the reasons why a lot of people, um, organize and clean up when they're stressed out. Um, you know, I, I'm not a particularly organized guy. You know, I'm organized up here, but my, you know, my, my wife is constantly bemoaning the fact that there's a trail of clothes right. that <laughs> follows me from the shower, you know, down the stairs, like what is going on here? But, but when I'm stressed out, I go around the house, like with a toothbrush and, you know, <laughs> I put everything in order and, there's a science that lots of people do this when they're stressed and, and there's a science behind it. You're ordering your surroundings to create order up here. Mm. And, and that's an easy actionable tool that people can use. Is that a sense of control too? Totally. Okay. So it's a sense of order and a sense of control. Hey, I can, I can control. So I'm not sick. I'm okay. You're sick. No, I'm not not sick. I'm not sick. So I can do like, that's me all day long. Like I'm doing everything around the house when I'm anxious about it. Like I can't get any work done on it, but it, I can do the laundry. I can do the dishes. I can clean up the, uh, yeah, That's I'm a little, yeah. yeah. So, so and so here's the interesting thing about this. Um, this is more myth busting. So, you know, some people think you, you use the word rituals. They think instantly OCD, obsessive right. compulsive. 
OCD obsessive compulsive. This is an example of taking what science says is a useful tool and taking it to such an extreme Mm -hmm. that it's causing real impairments in your life. But there's nothing wrong with engaging in a ritual when you're under stress. To the contrary, science says that it can actually benefit you in really useful ways. And so, you know, like I think of these, we've got this toolbox out there that we can fill with different tools for helping us manage this inner voice. We talked about just a few of them, like, you know, that coaching yourself like a friend, Mm -hmm. traveling in time in your head, chatter buddies, rituals are, are another tool. And, um, and they're one that I rely on quite a bit. That's awesome. I tell you what, we could. This is a fascinating discussion. We could do this for hours, <laughs> yeah. but we're going to honor both your time and your work by saying, "Go get his book." Yeah, Darren and I just ordered it. The book again is "Chatter: uh, The Voice in Our Head, Why It Matters, and How to Harness It." Uh, you can also find Ethan on ethancross.com. That's K-R-O-S-S. And take the quiz. Com. Read take through. The quiz. Take the quiz. The third place you can find him. I was. I was. Getting lost on this website, and, and, and I could see myself spending hours on this multiple days a week, is the University of Michigan Emotion and Self-Control Lab. And it's just an accumulation that you and your, your colleagues have come up with research studies and resources for all things we discuss in this episode and much more. So we've got one final question. Uh, we ask every guest this, and I'm, gonna be, I'm, I'm curious. I'm very yeah. curious what he's going to say on this one. If you could go back to any point in your life and tell yourself one thing, and in this context, either verbally or, or in your head, if you could tell yourself one thing, doesn't necessarily mean you go change anything, but if you could just go tell yourself one thing, where do you go and what do you tell yourself? Uh, that's, that's, that's heavy. Um, where do I go? What do I tell myself? Um, I go back to... Um, the time shortly after the birth of my, my first child. And I tell myself to chill out. It's going to be just fine. Mm. Yes, yeah. sir. <laughs> I, I had every, every caveman protective instinct kick in right. when my first child was born. Mm-hmm. And it took mm-hmm. me a couple of months to, to, to ease off that. Yeah, that, so, that Brooklyn came out in you. Yeah. <laughs> The, the accent came back. Yeah. It was crazy. Like, you wise guys. You call them the doctors wise like, guys. Like, What's going on? <laughs> yeah, parents out there, we, we can all relate to that for sure. For sure. Ethan, thank you so much, man. This was a blast. Yeah. Uh, we look forward to connecting again. We look forward to digging into the book as well. Thank you so much. Ethan, we appreciate you, man. Thanks for the time. Thank you, guys. Super fun. Good luck with everything. Thank, thank you. you. Take care.